Down at the pub every once in a while, someone will ask, what do you have that tastes like plain old beer? Now, I find this phrase amusing because the truth of the matter is, is that what they are thinking of as plain old beer as a style is really not that old. As a matter of fact, what the rest of the world knows as American light lager is really just a little more than a century and a half old. And given that the history of humans going back to proto-humans and alcohol is 10 million years old or more, a century and a half is like spitting in the ocean. Alcohol, ethanol to be exact, has been a part of human civilization for longer than there has been civilization. Our primate ancestors first enjoyed the effects of alcohol when they collected and ate fruit that had fallen to the ground and then the sugars within fermented. We know this is so because we can observe said behavior in animals today. The smell of ethanol is strong and distinct and animals, including our primate ancestors, are naturally drawn to it. Through genetic anthropology, we now know that all of the African ape species have been enjoying ethanol for 10 million years because that is when the mutation of the ADH4 gene allowed these apes, including our ancestors, to digest ethanol 40 times faster than before and much faster than any other species of fauna, meaning that apes had started to develop a tolerance for alcohol about that time. Now let's fast forward 9.8 million years, about 200,000 years ago, and modern humans appear. When they learn to harness the ability to control fermentation and make it a part of their everyday diet, we're not quite certain. But undoubtedly, they stumbled onto it sometime over the next well, 190,000 years or so. The earliest evidence of deliberate fermentation that we can find is traced to 7,000 BCE, 9,000 years ago, when the people of the Yellow River civilization of China were making a kind of wine from rice, honey, and fruit. Residues associated with fermentation were found in pottery shards at archaeological sites that are connected to that civilization. Now, around the same time in the Western Hemisphere, corn was domesticated, and a thousand years later, the cultivation and harvest of grapes began in the Near East, where the borders of modern Turkey, Armenia, Iran, and Iraq come together. The first evidence of grape and wine fermentation comes from 7,400 years ago in the Zagros Mountains of Iran. The first evidence of controlled fermentation in Europe comes from archaeological finds in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland 6,500 years ago, where early Neolithic farmers were making an ale of grain and heather. And about this same time in the Fertile Crescent at a site called Godentepe, the Sumerians began to produce the first barley beer. In 1500 BCE, the people of Central America were brewing fermented beverages from cacao beans and corn and just a few centuries later in Mexico, they were fermenting a beverage made from the juice of the agave plant. When the Europeans arrived in North America, they found the natives there drinking a beer made from tree sap and pumpkins. Now what all this evidence tells us is that while obviously ideas about fermentation have spread around from point to point, these examples dating from 9,000 to 3,500 years ago strongly suggest that the discovery of fermentation and alcohol sprang up independently at different points and on different continents across the ancient world just like the agricultural revolution that it's associated with. Out of the valleys of the Euphrates and Tigris River, the brewing of barley beer spread all over the Middle East. 
The importance of beer to these early civilizations cannot be overstated. It was a dietary staple, an enriched liquid bread, you might say, that provided calories and essential vitamins, and it delivered hydration in a safe method, much safer than the consumption of water. It was a staple of everyday life. The fact that it gave you a buzz, well, that's just a bonus feature. But the beer of this time was nothing like Paps Blue Ribbon or Miller High Life. It would have been viscous, beyond the point of hazy, thick, chewy. There would have been residual grain particles suspended in the liquid. And ancient art shows us that beer in Samaria, Babylonia, and Egypt was drank from large vessels with reed straws. And the assumption is they were pulling the clearer liquid from the middle, leaving the sediment in the bottom of the jar and the flotsam on top of the liquid. For decades, some anthropologists have postulated that it was the desire for beer and other alcoholic beverages that caused the Neolithic agricultural revolution, that period where we transitioned from hunter-gatherers to settled farmers. Others claim it was bread that caused this agricultural revolution. But the best evidence for supporting the alcohol argument comes to us from two places. Archaeological evidence of large-scale breweries in both Mesopotamia and Egypt from at least 5,000 years ago. There has never been an archaeological discovery of a bakery complex to match the size or sophistication of these ancient breweries. Additionally, some of the oldest writings from both Egypt and Mesopotamia, including the Epic of Gilgamesh, mention beer, and a Sumerian poem for the goddess Ninsaki, that is the goddess of beer, contains a rudimentary recipe for the beverage. The Code of Hammurabi, the oldest law book that we have, has laws regarding the brewing and regulation of beer. Beer has changed a lot in 10,000 years. Firstly, all beer was brewed with ale yeast. Lager beers did not appear until the end of the 15th century in Central Europe. The use of hops in the preservation and flavoring of beer didn't begin until the 700 CE in France, and then it migrated to the Low Countries and Germany over the next 800 years. But hops didn't become a part of British brewing traditions until the late 1600s, when William of Orange, a Dutch prince who preferred hops in his beer, took the throne with his wife Mary Stuart. They've got a university named after him in Virginia, William and Mary. You should look it up. But before hops, beer was flavored with various herbs and spices and was allowed to sour a bit with Brennomyces and Lactobacillus that produced tart and sour flavors. Wild yeast floated in the atmosphere and it got into the fermentation tanks producing fruity esters and flavors. Barley was dark roasted to cover up some of those undesirable flavors. And the German purity law of Reinheitsgebot, which prohibited the use of any ingredients in beer except for barley, hops, and water, yeast hadn't been discovered yet, was only instituted 500 years ago in 1516. So how did we, America, go from all of that to this? What we think of as beer today. Light, refreshing, well, kind of bland. Light on flavor. Some might say it's like sex in a canoe. It's f***ing close to water. The Germans have an expression. Malt is the soul of beer. Well, common American lager beers just don't have a lot of malt in them. Did you ever wonder why? <laughs> Would you believe it's because of German-American brewers?
This is episode 44. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Hello everyone, welcome to the Bruise Traveler. Thanks for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. I'm Alan Tatman, and I'm getting over a case of gunky sinuses and uh, a massive hangover. So, uh, champagne which I absolutely love the taste of champagne, but it doesn't like me. And last week I drank some on Wednesday night and I hated Thursday morning. Why? Well, I've been waiting nearly my entire life, more than 50 years, to say the following. The St. Louis Blues are Stanley Cup champions. Yes, I've been a Blues fan since I was a kid back in Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, Hockey was by far my favorite sport during my formative years, and the Blues were my team. Um, It was a tough road to get to the Stanley Cup, and a tip of the cap to the Boston Bruins. It was a remarkable series, Uh, went to seven games. And if you're not a hockey fan, I tell you, my brother watched the games, and he's not. a hockey fan, and he said it was so exciting, you know, he couldn't turn it off. It was. It was some really great hockey being played between the Bruins and the Blues. And anyway, this is a remarkable team. On the 3rd of January, they were in last place with the worst record in the NHL. And uh, they uh, they climbed all the way back with their on the shoulders of their rookie goaltender, uh, Jordan Bennington, who set all kinds of records in the second half of the season uh, for uh, rookie goaltenders. And now we have the cup in St. Louis. I wondered for many years if I'd ever see a championship. And now I have, and I'm happy. And thank you for letting me hockey geek out on you. (laughs) On to the show. This week, I have two interviews with very distinctly different people who are involved in the beer and beverage industry. First, Kat Walensky of Vinepair Magazine and Vinepair.com. A journalist based in New York City, she agreed to sit down with me and have a chat about what she sees going on in the world of beer. Uh, Kat primarily covers the brewing industry with an emphasis on craft beer, but she also does stories on other uh, alcoholic beverages. And uh, we, we're going to talk here about the beer business in general with uh, maybe a couple of things in specific. So she is one of the new voices in beer journalism, and she's up first. Secondly, I'm going to finish what I was talking about at the top of the show. How did German beer become American beer? I know a lot of you are familiar with the history behind uh, that story, but I get people asking me this question more frequently than I would expect. And so uh, I'm going to give you the condensed version of the story. And that story is important because my second guest this week, the owner and founder of William Bush Brewing Company, the maker of Kreftig and Kreftig Light Lager. None other than William Billy Bush of the Anheuser-Busch family, who when, after InBev bought out AB, Billy took his own inheritance and he started a brewery. He wanted to make sure that the Bush family name was still involved with brewing. And he started making a beer that's 100% barley malt, 
uh, no adjuncts, just barley, hops, water, yeast. Follows the Reinheitsgebot, German purity laws. It's uh, it's a very, very good lager. It's delicious. And uh, he stopped by the pub. He was in mid-Missouri on some business. Came by the pub. We sat down and we talked about, you know, beer and the history of beer and brewing in the United States and where he sees the industry going in the future. So that will be on later. Uh, Tony was on assignment in Boston and New England last week, and I didn't have a chance to catch up with him. Um, I wanted to ask him how it was watching uh, the final Game 7 while he was up there in that part of the world. Where did he go to watch it, or did he have to hide out in his hotel room? Because Tony is a Blues fan, just as I am. So I look forward to his story on that. But now let's get on with the show. And I sat down last week at the telephone and talked to Miss Kat Walensky. Here it is, your interview of the week. And on the phone from New York City, Fine Pair Magazine reporter and at Beer Affair on social media, Miss Kat Walensky. How are you, Kat? Hello, I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We've been trying to get together for this interview for quite a while, but I've been busy here, you've been busy there, and it just hasn't worked out. (laughs) But finally, this afternoon, and we'll get this up this week on the podcast, you're here with us. So thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day. You're located in Manhattan, which is the the city that never sleeps. There's probably always distractions there. So this is true. So how are are you from New York City to begin with? Sort of. I'm from a town called Manhasset, which is technically in Long Island. It's uh, right on the border of Queens, North Shore. So I'm I'm from the suburbs, but uh, pretty close to the city. It was like a 20 minute train ride. Kings uh, County. Queens. It's in Queens. Kings County is Brooklyn, which is ah, where I used to okay. live also. Okay. All right. <laughs> we were at Brooklyn Brewery when we were there on our trip in March, and they're really great people. I was. Oh, yeah. You must have seen the new tap room. They just like yeah, revamped yeah. the whole thing uh, last year. Will Ardvison, uh, he's the tap room manager, and he gave us a great uh, reception there. It was myself and Mary Lee and uh, two, other, two other couples. Anyway, t- so tell us about yourself. Uh, you grew up there in suburban New York City, and uh, uh-huh. what's your background? How'd you get into journalism, and how'd you get uh, following the beverage industry? I suppose it started in college. I went to uh, Binghamton University, upstate New York, and I was majoring in creative writing and getting to know a lot of different beers, uh, in addition to, you know, the typical macro lagers and beer pong uh, fillers. There was also a bar on campus called the Ale House that had all these different domestic, um, like local breweries on tap and beers from around the world. And one of those places you could get a passport and like, you know, you get your plaque, the oh, name sure. of the plaque on the wall if you try every beer. So I did that. <laughs> and that kind of ignited my thirst, if you will, and just awareness that like there could be so many different flavors and so many different uh, breweries from, you know, in your own states. It's just not something I, I knew growing up because we didn't have that. So after college, I was a local reporter, uh, freelance writing. Then eventually I worked at a magazine for several years. And I kind of started moonlighting as a beer writer, bar reviewer, um, just for local blogs and websites. And long story short, I eventually realized that I could cover beer as a business. And I 
quit my full-time job and went full-time freelance writing for different beer newspapers and magazines. And now here I am at Vine Care for the past year and a half almost. Great. So how many years now have you been involved in uh, beverage journalism? Let's see. I would say about five years. Okay. I was blogging for a couple of years, then um, freelance for three, and now Vine Care since last January 2018. In those five years, have you seen anything that really shocked the craft beer world, like the merger between Dogfish Head and Boston Beer here a month ago? That was pretty shocking. I don't think anything has been as shocking as that, other than, you know, the early AB and bad acquisitions, like right. when Goose Island uh, was was acquired or Wicked Weed was another pretty dramatic right. one because they were very staunchly, you know, independent and doing funky beers and things like that. Um, but this one, the Boston and Dogfish, I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> I did like, too. Whoa. <laughs> I, I was I was here working on the podcast uh, that night, May 9th. I think it was a Thursday. I can't recall correctly. It but, was. And um, I had my phone sitting on the desk and then your banner came up. This and I think it was like, no, this isn't a joke, is what you said. This isn't, <laughs> right. yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it shocked me too. Uh, yeah. We carry both of those uh, brands at our pub. I'm really excited about it because now I'm hoping we have, while we have easy access to Samuel Adams here in mid-Missouri, Dogfish Head is kind of hit and miss because the local distributors have to buy it by the truckload from Milton. I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that that might be um, alleviated, and that we'll be able to get Dogfish Head any brand in kegs, cans, bottles, just as easily as we can Samuel Adams. I'm curious to hear what you think is the benefit or maybe disadvantages of uh, of, of to the craft beer community. I think you said it right there. It's markets where Dogfish Head has not been as available are going to have a lot easier time getting it. And for me, we we see a good amount of it here in the Northeast. Right. But, you know, you forget that there are several states that don't have this this access. And, like, to be honest, I think that's going to be the biggest change is just now Dogfish will be everywhere that Sam Adams is. It'll, It'll mean, you know, at a pub, like you said, You'll have dogfish next to Sam Adams on tap. Um, it's not that different from, you know, a bar that has several AB InBev brands or Miller brands, you know, next to each other. Right. But in this case, beers that we're, we're happy to see uh, getting out there more and reaching more consumers. I agree. Um, we, we couldn't get dogfish head in Missouri until like three years ago. And... I mean, it's while it in some places it's well known, uh, like our pub, which is a craft beer bar. Uh, mm-hmm. People are very familiar with Dogfish Head, but you don't see it on the the grocery shelves because the name just isn't uh, as prevalent in the craft beer uh, consumers' psyche here in the the middle of you know in a small town, a small city here in the middle right. of the country. I think, and I, I want to ask you this, I think that uh, Jim Cook did this because he knew that Sam Calagione would be a good fit for as a front man 
for the entire uh, for the company. I what are your feelings on that? Sam is definitely a good front man. Oh yeah, he is. Um, he's entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's just he's out there. He's always. You know, he's at every event. It seems like he's everywhere at once. It's very impressive. High, um, high energy. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, I don't think it's just Dogfish as a face to be out there. I think it's also the beer. You know, Sam Adams and Boston Beer, like their beer portfolio has been in pretty steady decline for a while. Right. While Dogfish has been successful and I mean, Boston Beer has more success with their other brands like the Truly Hard Seltzer and right. the uh, Angry Orchard Cider and, you know, these kind of alternative or FMBs or flavored malt beverages. Like, right. That's been skyrocketing where the beer hasn't been so much. So now it's kind of this symbiotic relationship where Boston Beer gets, you know, more good beer in their portfolio. Right. And then Dogfish now has this connection with the seltzer and the cider and Dogfish also distills. So now it's like between the two companies are kind of covering all the bases of beverage alcohol. Oh, yeah. You, you bring that up and that's an interesting uh, question. You're there in the heartbeat of the United States. I mean, New York city, it's, it's the city. It never sleeps. Uh, well, are you seeing more of the millennials, the younger people, are they drifting away from beer? in the bars and at the club scenes and stuff like that? In, in my circle, no. Okay. <laughs> um, I tend to hang around a lot of people that like beer as much as I do, but even so, I wouldn't say as much uh, moving away from beer as moving away from larger regional, regional brands. Like okay. Around here in the city, if you're a beer geek, you still appreciate uh, brands like Sam Adams and Dogfish, and I certainly still drink them on occasion, but most of the time we're looking for the hyper-local breweries, like the breweries that are here in our city that are making really great beer. It's just, it's here, it's exciting, it's great quality, so it's kind of like, why would I buy an IPA from, you know, a larger company five states away when I can get one that was just brewed yesterday, like fresh on tap? How many breweries do you think there are in the city now? And 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 the surrounding metropolitan area, it's got to be in the city alone. It's more than thirty. It's like around thirty-five, I believe. Wow. And then Long Island has like forty or more. Um, in the state, we now have a, a close to four hundred breweries in New York State, I believe. Right. Yeah. It's 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 a mecca if you want to go. It is. If you want to go and uh, discover some really great beer. Speaking of that, you tweeted about beer vacations. Have you yeah. got have you got one planned that you're going to go somewhere and and uh, check out the local brews somewhere else in the country? I do have one planned, although it's not in our country. Okay, where are you going? <laughs> I'm going to Belgium in September. Oh, I'm so envious. I mean, this is like the most one of the most important pilgrimages for any beer nerd. Oh yeah. Um, and Vine Pair is actually hosting a trip to Belgium for, it's a, a reader trip where anybody can buy tickets to join us. Um, you pay for your own flights and then the um, Vine Pair trip includes visiting a bunch of breweries and really cool bars. We'll be in Brussels and Antwerp and yeah, it's going to be when is that? an amazing time. That is September 15th through 20th. Oh, that'd be so cool. And where can people find out about that? At vinepair.com? 
Yes, mypair.com. There is, uh, we've been sending it out in our newsletter. I'm sure it's uh, somewhere on the homepage, but I can, okay. uh, I can follow up with you on that. <laughs> Everyone's saying that this craft beer bubble is just about to burst. And there's so many breweries. I hear it every time when I interview when I interview brewers around the country, they're like, you know, getting shelf space is a real trouble, real problem. And being relevant in the market is a real problem. And with over 12,000 breweries in the United States now, everybody's expecting there to be a, a bubble to burst. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm curious to hear your feelings and thoughts on that. I say no. There is no bubble. The bubble's not bursting. I think it is just changing. Okay. Um, what what these brewers that you just uh, mentioned are saying is absolutely true. It's getting more competitive. It is really challenging to get shelf space and tap handles. But I think where these this, the business model of growing and uh, distributing in more states and across the country like that is not really working anymore. If that's the bubble you're talking about, then right. okay, maybe that it is shrinking. Um, but I think there are new opportunities for even smaller breweries. Like I mentioned, the breweries in you know that are local to each city, each town. Like the VA came out with that stat that almost every American adult is within you know ten miles of a brewery. It's it's really the small like mom and pop and and brew pubs that are showing the most growth versus the bigger brands that are trying to distribute further than their own communities. So I think it's fair to say that you believe that the industry is going to be become more localized. Yes, definitely. Okay. Well, that uh, I I have that same feeling too. Uh, I don't I don't know about the emergence of any more big craft breweries like i mean multi-state regionals i think that's going to be right. a slow i think there's going to, that's going to be slower progress you agree i agree yeah is anything that's since you've been covering beverage journalism is there anything else that happened in the recent past that really kind of surprised you well one thing that's kind of a downer but continues to surprise me is like breweries that are coming out with just misinformed beer labels, whether it's sexist labels or appropriating a culture in a really offensive way. Um, Maybe you read my column. I did. I did read your, I did read your column. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. About uh, Mirage beer. And they had, they came out with a very well-received apology, um, but they had those cans that were Were modeled after the Crips and the Bloods, which is like, it's just not, it's in poor taste. Right. It's offensive. If you want to read more about it, go to vinepair.com and, and read my column. But uh, I would yeah, I would suggest like, everybody. Every time this yep. happens, I'm like, what? Yeah. Why is it still happening? How? I, I mean, we all have this like collective consciousness and this like community driven, like good feels in the beer industry, but then these these like screw ups still continue to happen, which it's uh it is shocking to me, but. I think the more we talk about these things, the more people will become aware and, you know, think more about their decisions and, and how it's affecting people. Exactly. In January, I was out in Colorado. I was in the town of Longmont and visited a couple of breweries out there. One of them we went to, every beer they had um, 
had a misogynistic or sexist connotation to it. I won't say oh the name. I know I, I won't say the name of the brewery, but it was you know I, I I walked in and I read the you know the board, and I'm like, and then I look around. It's a Sunday afternoon. There are no young people there, and when I say I'm 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 in my mid fifties. When I say young people, I mean people under thirty years old. And most mm-hmm. of it was they were if they they were either single men that were or by themselves I should say uh, men in their forties. Or they were couples that were in their 40s. And it kind of, I, I don't mean anything disparaging, but it kind of had the feel of a biker bar, you know, uh-huh. and rather than a craft brewery. And, uh, yeah, I, I was I didn't even bother to talk to management. I thought, if you're naming your beer this stuff, then I, I don't I don't see what, uh, what the point is in having a conversation. Yeah. So Such a bummer. I, I mean, yeah, nothing against bikers, but no. sexist beer names like and Longmont's. That's a really great town for a beer. There's a lot of breweries there. Right. Yeah, and this one, and I'll tell you off uh, off the uh, recording here what the name of it is. Uh, but um, so, anything else you'd like to tell the listeners before we move on to the cool. lightning round? Drink good beer. Don't worry too much about what's trendy or what's hot. Just drink what you love. And if you ever have any questions, hit up Fine Pair or Beer Fair, and we have all the info for you. And uh, you do. There's some good, great information. If you're not following Cat, you should be. Hey, the lightning round. Here we go. Are you ready? Okay. Five, five questions. There are no right or wrong answers, only right or wrong people. Okay. No. <laughs> Number one in the category of pets. These are all about cats, all right? In the category of pets, tabbies or calicos? Tabbies. Number two, world of wildlife, mountain lions or pumas? Ooh, mountain lions. Okay. Movies, Catwoman or the Pink Panther? Catwoman. Okay. Cartoons, Garfield or Sylvester? Hmm. I think that's Garfield. Okay. And finally... In the, the music industry, indie rock songstress Cat Power or 70s pop rock icon Cat Stevens? Cat Power. Yes, she's, she's fantastic. She really is. <laughs> Cat Walensky, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to uh, call me and have a conversation about beer. I really love your work. Everybody, you should be following this young lady. She's got some great, great stories about the industry. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Glad we could finally do this. I'm glad too. Hey, and we're we're thinking about getting uh, more tickets to to Kill a Mockingbird and coming back in the fall before it does finishes its run. If we do, I'll give you a call and let you know when we're going to be in Manhattan. Yeah, do do so, please. I'll be here. All right. And if you ever come to the if you ever come to the Show Me State, yeah, give me a <laughs> give me give me a yell. I'd meet you in St. Louis, Kansas City, or any points in between. Kat Walensky, everybody, thank you again. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again to Kat. I tell you, I look forward to her writings every day. Uh, Right now up on vinepair.com, she's got a great story um, about the history of Clydesdale and other draft horse breeds that were used in the brewing industry for transportation. Uh, before the trucks and trailers supplanted the gentle giants of the equine world from uh, from the beer world. Anyway, it's a great read. Uh, you can find a link to it over on the, our Facebook page. 
Besides vinepair.com, you can also follow Kat on social media, entering her tag at Beer Affair on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. She's very active on Twitter, as a matter of fact, which is something that I am not. And uh, that's where she puts up a lot of her stories and links to other stories that she shares uh, from other reporters. And she's especially in tune to social activism in the world of brewing. So if you're a beer geek and you're not following her, you should be. That's Kat Walensky over at vinepair.com. Now there are those who like to think we'd be best without the drink. No beer, ale, or frothy pints of porter. So let's hypothesize how it would change your lives if everyone were only drinking water. There'd be no public houses, no bars to take a spouses. Okay, so how did or why did German lager become American lager? Well, there are really kind of, there are seven factors to consider. German immigration, improved transatlantic transportation, advances in glass manufacturing, brewing technology, prohibition, World War II, and the post-war consumer packaged goods economy. Between 1840 and 1900, millions of German-speaking immigrants came to the U.S. Now, prior to the mid-1800s, British-style ales, porters, and stouts were the most commonly brewed beers in America. There were no lagers here. And at the same time that these German immigrants were coming to the U.S., the technology of the clipper ship was becoming more widely used. And crossing the Atlantic in 1820 usually took a month. But by 1840, with favorable weather conditions, it took only two weeks. Now, this is important because of the fragility of lager yeast. Ale yeast can be kept indefinitely as long as it's kept in a dark, cool environment between being used. Lager yeast, however, outside of an active fermentation environment, seldom stays alive for more than three weeks. So, German immigrant brewers coming over after 1840 were able to finally bring their own lager yeast because of the faster ships. And they could get it to the United States in a timely manner and set up their own shops. Now, these German brewers wanted a nice, clear, golden, pale beer because that was the style that was, at the time, very popular in Germany. But the American six-row barley, which was the only type of barley available in North America, is different than the European two-row barley that was grown in Germany. And they were unable to brew a clear beer with American barley because it's higher in protein content and it made the beer hazy. And... To import two-row barley from Europe, well, that would have been cost prohibitive. So, the beer they were brewing didn't look as pretty as they wanted it to. And this was kind of important at the time because another thing that was happening were advances in industrial glass production. Prior to that, most taverns and inns were using ceramic vessels to serve their ale. So, if a, a beer was cloudy or dark, aesthetically speaking, the beer didn't need to be pretty. But with the availability of cheap and plentiful glassware, a visually appealing beer was much more desirable. So to achieve this, these German-American brewers figured out that if you used low-protein grains like corn or rice and mixed that into the recipe with the six-row barley, you'd get a lower protein content and the beer could be laudered and filtered to finish clear. 
Now, of course, some of the taste was sacrificed, but who cares? The beer was beautiful. The introduction of corn and rice to American lager never had anything to do with cheaper materials, as some people have suggested, but everything to do with aesthetics. And by the way, why did Anheuser-Busch decide on rice as their adjunct, while Miller and the other Milwaukee brewers used corn? Geography. St. Louis was closer to the rice fields on the lower Mississippi River Valley. Milwaukee was closer to the cornfields on the plains and prairies of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa. So, when Bud Light says, we use rice, they use corn, it's a bunch of disingenuous crap. It's all the same. It's an adjunct for your beer. Moving on. By the end of the 19th century, there were more than 4,000 breweries in the United States, most of them owned by German families. Some notable German-American brewers like Adolf Coors, Frederick Miller, Frederick Papps, Joseph Schlitz, Eberhard Anheuser, and his son-in-law, Adolphus Busch. With this boom in brewing, let's be honest, distilling of spirits as well, there came some other things, some societal things that weren't, uh, what do we want to say, they weren't attractive. Public drunkenness and domestic violence were often blamed upon the widespread sale of alcohol. And it led to the temperance movement, and it gained enough steam that in 1919, Congress and the government lost its proverbial mind and passed the 18th Amendment ushering in the beginning of prohibition in the United States. The production, transport, and sale of alcohol became illegal, and the beer industry all but ceased to exist. And what beer was being brewed during prohibition was manufactured by organized crime, Al Capone. I grew up in a tough neighborhood, and we used to say you can get further with a kind word and a gun than you can with just a kind word. <laughs> And they brewed that beer at the cheapest possible cost. And Americans widely accepted this cheaper watered-down brew because that was all they could get. Now, when Prohibition ended in 1933, only a fraction of the breweries that had previously been operating were able to survive. And because of strict state and federal taxation policies, a lot of these that were smaller breweries, well, they didn't make it very long. Now, the brewers that did make it did it largely by making beer that was even lighter in malt than that that they made in the pre-prohibition period. Then World War II came along and grain was rationed, so this made brewers rely even more on adjuncts like corn and rice. And while many of the big brewers had contracts and relationships with grain buyers, most smaller breweries didn't. And then that knocked a bunch of them out of the game as well. After World War II, nationally distributed consumer packaged goods took over the shelves and coolers of grocery stores and supermarkets. There were also very narrow media outlets, only a few national radio networks, and only three national television networks, so marketing was narrowed down to a very small number of brands on a very small number of platforms. And all of these goods had national distribution throughout the country. We had three kinds of soap. Ife Boy, Ivory, and Palmolive. Toothpaste, we had two. Crest and Colgate. No gel, just that paste stuff. That's it. Breakfast cereals, you had Kellogg, Post, and General Mills. Coffee, you had two. Folgers and Maxwell House. And really, kids, back then, coffee was just brown water. 
uh, it was we didn't have any good coffee until 1985. We just didn't. Everything was narrowed down to a few national brands, and beer was no different. Throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, many small independent breweries either dissolved or they were gobbled up by the big boys. And then in the 1970s, the big three, Miller, A.B., and Coors, they developed a new strategy to sell more beer. Light beer, brewed with even less malted barley than the less malted barley after World War II than the less malted barley after Prohibition. Okay, you, you see where I'm going. And it was lower in alcohol, it was lower in carbohydrates, and all it did was make people drink more beer. That was it. And that, kids, is the way it was back in the good old days when I was a kid. We had American light lager, which we called beer. And we had American really light lager, which we called light beer. And we liked it. That's all we had. And we didn't have a hockey pucks to play hockey with, so we, we used a frozen cat's head. Not really. We, it was a possum's head with homemade sticks. <laughs> Moving on. So finally, in 1977 and 1978, Congress and the president actually did something that was beneficial to both the economy and society as a whole. Congress passed the Small Brewer Tax Credit, reducing excise taxes specifically for small brewers that made less than 2 million barrels of beer annually. And the next year, President Carter signed into law a bill that made home brewing legal again for the first time since Prohibition. This, in turn, created the Home Brewing Laboratory, which morphed into the craft beer segment of the brewing industry. And that's why we have other beers to drink besides American light lagers. But don't get me wrong. There are some lagers out there that are very good. Uh, Urban Chestnut in St. Louis makes some fantastic lager beers. And another one of those beers is Kreptig, made by the William Bush Brewing Company of St. Louis, Missouri. And a couple of weeks ago, I sat down at Patty Malone's with a member of brewing royalty, Billy Bush, the great-great-grandson of Eberhard Anheuser and the great-grandson of Adolphus Bush. We talked about his new venture that he started a few years back, Kreptig Beer. And this is it, your second interview of the week. I got to tell you guys, I have interviewed a lot of people over the last year, but this might be uh, one of the most exciting for me because I'm, uh, I am meeting with Brewing Royalty here this afternoon at Patty Malone's Pub here in Jefferson City. Billy Bush of the Bush family. Billy, it's good to see you again and good to be here sitting here and enjoying a crafting with you this afternoon. Thanks for coming. Alan, out of your way and stop by here just to be on our little old podcast. Alan, we're out running our routes today. We're out visiting other wholesalers, and we're in mid-Missouri, and it's always a pleasure to come to visit you at your beautiful establishment. Well, thank you. And we can't thank you enough for supporting our brands, Kreftig and Kreftig Light, in this great establishment, and it's sure nice to be here having one with you right now. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Um, I talked a little bit about how... German lager became American lager at the beginning of the show before we, we got to the interview here. But tell us the story of Eberhard Anheuser and Adolphus Busch and how that came and all the way up to you and crafting beer. 
Well, it's kind of a long story, so I won't uh, bore you with all the details. Give us the reader di- reader's but, uh, digest. But the reader's digest um, is that my great-grandfather, Adolphus, immigrated to St. Louis from Germany. He lived along the Rhine River with his family um, in Germany. And he immigrated to St. Louis because a lot of Germans were doing just that back in those days in the 1800s, the mid-1800s. They understood uh, river commerce, they understood river business, so it made sense for them to come to a place like St. Louis where you have the Mississippi River business going on. So they moved along the river there, um, and he moved there and met a young lady when he was very He moved there in 1857. He was 18 years old. A year or two later, he met a young lady named Lily. Lily was Eberhard Anheuser's daughter. Right. And his brother also met Lily's sister. And um, they ended up marrying on the same day. They had a double marriage, uh, Adolphus and his brother. And at that time, Eberhard, the father-in-law, um, had a, a brewery, a little brewery downtown in downtown St. Louis. So he had a, so so Everhart had a um, had the brewery downtown. It was a very small brewery, and um, he ended up uh, buying it with his, with a few partners. And they wanted to make a go of it. It wasn't doing that well, and they couldn't really get the business rocking and rolling and moving forward. So he decided that he was either going to try to sell it or shut it down. He ended up asking his son-in-law Adolphus if he had any interest in the beer business. Um, of course, Adolphus said, "Yes, I am interested in, in growing this company and, and and running it." And so him and Lily ended up taking over um, the beer business that Everhart had, and of course they renamed it to Anheuser-Busch, and um, really the rest is history, you know. Adolphus was incredibly innovative. Um, He was the one that started pasteurizing beer. He met with uh, Louis Pasteur, um, and he learned how to make beer, how to pasteurize beer. Well, of course, that enabled beer to be kept longer. You could it, it, the shelf life was much longer, so you could transport it to further um, further area areas away from St. Louis, out to other parts of uh, the country. And uh, he also helped invent the refrigerated railroad car. Yes. So now he could not only um, not only could he transport beer further off because it was because it was pasteurized but it was also kept cold right. and he didn't want, and you didn't pasteurize draft beer then no. so he could move draft beer around right. and he kept it on the uh, west side of the mississippi because he didn't want to pay the tax to go across the mississippi really? with with beer and so he first went towards texas and um, he ended up building a hotel down in dallas texas called the adolphus hotel where he stayed a lot he helped he helped uh, start the um, brewery lone star with some other fellows down okay. there and um, he, uh, he needed a beer that he could make that people could enjoy in the heat. Right. Back in those days, of course, there wasn't any air conditioning, and the summers in St. Louis are extremely warm, very hot. Brutal and muggy. And so he was really the only beers, styles of beers that were around then were ales, and they were heavier ales, very hoppy, very heavy. And... Um, he wanted a beer that was would be more refreshing and like, like more a, drinkable, like a Czech Pils or a Bavarian style lager. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So the story goes that him and his brewmaster went to uh, Germany to find a really great recipe to make this beer, and he was traveling around horse and buggy with his uh, 
brewmaster, and they couldn't find an inn to stay in one evening. He ended up he ended up uh, pulling into he ended up pulling into a monastery, a Benedictine monastery, and um, they they allowed they they said he could spend the night there, him and his brewmaster, and they fed him dinner that night. And of course the uh, the monks were great at brewing beer, and they offered him some beer, and they loved the beer. It was just exactly what they were looking for. They gave him the recipe. They took that recipe back to the United States, and they started their own beer, of course, and that's Budweiser and what you see in Budweiser today. So, now, but Craftig is different than most mass-produced American-style lagers in the fact that you don't use any adjuncts. That's that's exactly right, Alan. Um, we don't use cereal adjuncts in our beer. When we first were looking for a recipe, I had the great opportunity and pleasure to work with the godfather of all brewmasters in Germany, Ludwig Narciss. Okay. And um, he, uh, he, he, wrote, he has written books on brewing beer, and he helped, uh, and, he, and he, he works at uh, Fine Stefan as a teacher at that school. Uh-huh. They come to him to, uh, to learn about the brewing uh, process and how to make beer, and he teaches that. The man is now in his 90s, and he still is in great shape. I saw him a few years ago again, and he's a um, great guy. But he, he told us, he said, listen, he said all the premium American premium lagers are using cereal adjuncts. Right. He said if you want to make the best lager and you want it to be completely authentic, you need to stick with the old German purity law that dates back to 15-something. 15, 15 yeah, the 1500s in, the, yeah. in Bavaria. Yeah, Prince exactly. Ludwig. Over 500 yeah. years ago. Yeah. And that means you can only use the four ingredients, barley, hops, yeast, and malt. Bar- barley, hops, yeast, and water. Right. And that's, um, that's how we started brewing our beer. Now, of course, that can be a heavy beer, but we had to tone it down a little right. bit because we wanted to also be refreshing and also to be sessionable. So we did that, and we think we came up with the, with the finest recipe there is in the premium lager category. I think it is a premium lager, and it, it's, del- it's rich in flavor, whereas most American premium lagers, they're just... I don't know. They don't have the flavor that I'm looking for in, in a beer. I, I, because I think because of the craft beer explosion, uh, the average beer drinker is expecting more flavor from their beer than they're going to get with, say, light or Bud Light or any, you know. And you guys have, I think, accomplished that. You've, you've got a niche. Well, thank you, Alan. That's exactly what we were shooting for when we... When we uh, when we built the recipe for our beer. And we wanted it to have a little bit more flavor because you're right, the consumer these days are looking for more flavor. I mean, go to any Starbucks and you go to, and you see lines outside because people want more flavor in their coffee. People also, that's why the craft industry has done so well in the last 25, 30 years. It's because people want more flavor in their beer. And of course, if you try our beer, you're gonna have a little bit more flavor. It's still gonna be smooth and very drinkable, but you're gonna have a little bit more flavor and you're gonna get that flavor and you're going to get that German-esque taste to it. Yes. First thing I'm noticing is that the, the hop profile and the malt are very well balanced. There's a sweetness to this beer that you don't get a lot with premium American lagers. There's, it's just it's malty, and I like malt, and, and this, I think, is quite well balanced. It's not overly carbonated either. Right. You know, I mean, a lot of times when you get, especially 
I want to make like the, the lower tier beers. Yep. Lower tier uh, lager beers. They're very, very fizzy. And, of course, makes you burp. And, you know, it's like that's one of them things. And I was talking to um, I was talking to a guy and he said they do that to mask the fact that they don't have they don't have the uh, the ingredients in the beer. The ingredients, the, exactly. So this is this is this is an old it's, is this naturally carbonated? This is naturally carbonated. And you're and you're right. I think uh, uh, our brewmaster makes every effort to make sure the carbonation is just right. right. It's very important you do that. Of course, I like to drink beer out of a glass. The reason I like to pour it in the glass is because it lets some of the carbonation right. out, right. Uh, lets some of the CO2 out, and that way you don't get the yeah. fizziness and drinking and the, out of the, and the fullness in your stomach so, from, so from that. Those, those of you out there listening and saying, well, beer makes me burp, then try drinking it out of a glass. Pour it in a glass. Exactly. But I like what you said, Alan. I like the fact that you notice the combination and the balance between the right. malt and the hops. Right. And that's a very important uh, part of brewing our beer, right. to, to get that good combination. I also like what you said about the sweetness of our beer. I've always loved to touch the sweetness. My father, Gussie Bush, was, was very much for a little bit of sweetness in his beer. Right. And um, I think sweetness is important. And we use a combination, mainly two-roll two malt, but we do use some six-roll bar barley also. Okay. Um, we also add a little caramel malt to get that sweetness. So, okay. it's, so it, it's not as light as the Creptic Light because we don't add caramel malt okay. to Creptic Light. So that's why it might be, a, if, you, if, you, if you look at it really closely, you'll see it's a shade darker. Yeah, I'm looking. Than, I've, got, I've got the, it is. It's you just, notice that? It's just a little bit darker, the regular lager, than the light lager. And that's because of that caramel malt, which is adding to the sweetness, right. too. Where are you guys at on annual production right now? You know, we're at it about uh, 6,000 barrels right now. Okay. Yes. So still growing? Still still growing slowly, yep. And that's, and your distribution, what states are you in? We're in Missouri now. We're in a big part of Missouri, and we're also in a small part of Illinois. That's it. Right. So we really wanted to capture the audience in our own backyard right. before, we, before we get spread out too far. We've actually spread out um, at, at a point, and we kind of dialed it back a little bit, too. Yeah. Because if um, you can't, if you can't, if, yeah, if it's not can't selling, supply your market, if, you're going to lose. If you can't supply or you don't sell well in other markets, right. and and in this day and age, the beer business has changed a lot. Uh, people are very loyal to their local beer brewery, right. whether it's a craft brewery or a big brewery. They're very loyal to it, and. Um, just to, to branch out and go into markets where people are loyal to their local brewery, right, right. Uh, brewery it's difficult to sell a lot of beer. Uh, you guys are getting ready to do something big. You announced last year you're going to build a... You, right now your beer is being brewed up at the old Heileman Brewery. Is that right? That's in, correct. In yes, the city Wisconsin. brewery. Right. Yes, sir. You're opening a new brewery in St. Charles County just west of St. Louis metropolitan area uh, in Defiance. So tell us about that. Well, it's it's been an interesting uh, ride so far in this whole industry, you know, um, in this business that we've been in. It's a family business. My wife and my children are all involved in the business. We've got some great people working for us. Uh, Ray Dombrowski, who you see, you see here today, and Jake Fuchsia over there. Um, and, and our brewmaster, Mark Gottfried, and a couple others. We're a small company. We have five people working for us. Um, we looked for two years all over St. Louis to build a brewery. We looked in the city. We looked in the county. Um, and we finally decided that 
who, what is most, what most fits us and who we are and our personalities as a family. And we decided, why not build our brewery on, a, on our farm? Um, out in Defiance. It's not right. too far out. It's close enough to St. Louis that I think people will come to it. Oh, yeah. St. Charles is the fastest growing area in the Missouri. Well, as you know, the wineries out there are busy every weekend with people coming. So I can see that that drawing a lot of uh, a lot of visitors to your place. You're exactly right, Alan. There's about 10 wineries out there, and we're right at the beginning of the wine trail. Um, and and so we're actually closer than the winer than than all the wineries out there right. to St. Louis. So we feel we've got a great location. We're on a beautiful farm overlooking a lake, rolling hills, uh, open area where we can really educate people on how beer is made, where the ingredients come from. They'll get the feel of glass to or excuse me, farm to glass and how the beer is made. Right. Um, in this in this brewery, it's going to be an incredible brewery. We've got we we've got great equipment coming in to make the beer. Um, we're going to grow crops out at our farm so people can see what goes in the beer, the barley and the hops, any all any ingredients that um, that go into beer will be grown on our farm. And I, I think it's going to be a wonderful experience for people to enjoy and see and even bring their families out because sure. there's going to be animals there to oh, interact cool. with. You know, I grew up, I grew up like that. I grew up on a, sure, I grew up there and I grew up on the entertainment side of the business in a big way, you know, working at Grand's Farm. I understand that business. I understand the animal uh, part of it. I understand the event and all the different things that that entails. So I think this is right up our alley. This is who we are. And so you're I'm gonna so have excited. like a German beer garden and a beer hall. Absolutely, we'll have a beer. Be we'll have a beer hall. We'll have a beautiful outside area. We'll have places where people can walk and, and view things and see animals. And um, you know, just the, just to drive up alone is going to be breathtaking. You mentioned your father, Jesse, um, who a lot of people that a lot of people that listen to our podcast are St. Louis Cardinals fans. And I think there are, a lot of them are of a generation that don't remember your father. But your dad saved baseball in St. Louis in the 1950s. He, he really did because numbers were dwindling. There was nobody knew anything about marketing. But he brought his marketing expertise from the brewery and brought it to the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team, making them one of the most successful franchises, well, the most successful franchise in National League history and one of the most in, in Major League history. And I, I, I just want to tell you, it, that's something that all Cardinal fans need to remember is that Gussie Bush saved baseball for us. Well, thank you, Alan. Just as much as um, as St. Louis can be happy that Gussie, my dad, saved baseball, he is so happy that he was able to have the opportunity to purchase the team and be a part of that. His, uh, his, his years of being the owner of the Cardinals and riding out on the wagon yeah. um, at baseball games with the Clydesdales pulling him and waving to all the people was just incredible for him. He loved every second of it. He loved the people. He loved baseball. He loved sports. He loved what it brought to St. Louis. And he loved going out and waving his hat to all the folk, all the fans. Well, 
your family being involved in this for as long as, and you starting up a new brewery in 2011 with your crafting um, perspective-wise, you've got a unique uh, view of things. What do you see uh, is going to be the direction of the U.S. beer market? I see the uh, I see the beer business um, moving in a direction that um, I think we're going to see some fallout from a lot of the breweries that are there now. I think there's going to be some fallout of some breweries. Right. I think right now there's an oversaturation of beers in the marketplace. I think if you walk down the the uh, beer aisle at a grocery store or a liquor store, you see so many darn beers these days. And I think you're starting to see a few less out there now. I think I think wholesalers are oversaturated with the number of beers they're carrying, and I don't think they can handle them all. And I think um, retailers can't handle all the beers that are out there. So I think there's going to be a few less uh, breweries um, or maybe there'll be as many breweries, but maybe the, those breweries will be making a few less products okay. than they're making right, right now. Right now, some breweries are making you know lots and lots of different types of beers. Maybe they'll have to come back, draw back a little bit on this, on that many beers, and really specialize in only in only a few strength. on yeah. core strength. Right. Yes. That leads me into the next question: What challenges do you foresee for smaller brewers in in the uh, upcoming years? Oh, there's a lot of challenges that you have to deal with. Um, I think getting getting shelf space at retail is always a challenge. Um, I think being unique and and being able to be innovative is always a challenge, and it's always something you want to try to do. I think there are a few breweries out there that do an incredible job at innovation and uniqueness and I think that's going to be a, a big part of it because I think there's so many breweries out there making so many good beers right now that uh, there's that it's just really hard to compete and I think that really you have to uh, you have to and have a place that you can have a story that you can invite people to that they can see where you're that, that you're for real that you've got the bricks and mortar that you have a place that you're um, you've got the ability to brew some great beer and you have to be able to make a few good ones that are really going to stand out so now when you get the new brewery opened out in defiance what you say a, a year and a half you think i think a year and a half okay. yes Will you be doing other styles of beer, uh, German styles of beer, like Kolsch and alt beers and things of this nature? I really like the idea of the alt beer that you right. just mentioned because that's the farm beer in Germany. Absolutely. You knew about that. Oh, I yeah. I've, I've yep. drank a few of those. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, our, our brewmaster specializes in lagers. I love lagers, but he also wants to do some IPAs that he can do very, okay. very well, too. He's talking about some New England IPAs, which I think uh, are pretty amazing. I think that might be one of the best styles of beer to come out in a long time. I agree. So I think we have the ability to make six, eight, even ten really, really high-quality, great-tasting beers that people are going to really enjoy. Hopefully that's not too many, and if it is, we'll dial back a little bit. Well, forward. I want to be there for the grand opening. I, I really do. I want you there, Al. 
But the other the other things that are the other things that are be, uh, well, one other style that's pretty popular these days is uh, is the barrel aged beer. Right. Have you had any barrel aged beer? Oh out? yes. And and there are some good ones out there. There are some good ones. There's, and there's some really terrible ones too. If I you think ask there's me. a lot of people that are trying to make barrel aged beers that don't know what they're doing. Right. And now some guys are doing these barrel aged high gravity beers, and these guys, they're they're chemists. I mean, they're, exactly. they're chemists when it comes to this stuff. And I'll talk to them, I interview them, and they tell me they're throwing out terms that I haven't heard ever. And But they make some really solid beers. So you're going to get a barrel-aged beer. And, and we're going to do a barrel-aged beer. And the great thing about uh, what we've got going for us is we've got a brewmaster that is a chemist. And he understands right. all the gravities and all the different processes that go into making a great beer. Well, And I think he'll be perfect for us and, and able to do the things we really want them to do but the cool thing about it is because of the synergies between making beer and making distilled spirits we're also going to add a distillery to our place oh, nice. so we're going to not only be making six eight ten really fine beers but we're also going to make some really good whiskeys and single malts and some flavored whiskeys and bourbons and things like that right from our own place which will give us the ability to not only make all that, have that in our portfolio, but also to make barrel-aged beer right from our place where we're making our whiskey. So it's really exciting. I think uh, I think that's going to be a big part of our business. And as 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 the beer business continues to grow, and you see the challenges in the beer business, part of the challenge is the fact that spirits are doing so well. Right. They're they're taking market share from. From, um, in from the alcohol beer. industry, yeah. from from the beer category, and um, so we'll be able to capture some of that with our company too. Well, I this is exciting. I'm looking forward to it. And as uh, as I said earlier, uh, your family has a reputation. You don't do anything that, if you don't do it right. You got that right. So before we get out of here, is there anything else you'd like to tell the listening audience about crafting? Well, um, you know. It's been uh, it's been a great ride what we've been on in the last several years. Uh, the business is we've seen ups and downs in the business. We've seen some growth. Um, we've seen some pullback along the way too because of the of the challenges of the industry and because there's so much competition out there um, in not just the beer business but in distilled spirits and in wine that. Uh, and, and, and that everybody, the, the beer industry, even though it's a fun business and we all get along pretty well, everybody's fighting tooth and nail for, for uh, shelf space and to, and, to, and to win in the business because there's so many beer companies out there. Um, it's made us understand, it's made me understand even more how important my family and I need to work together and build our own brewery at this right. time. What I want people to understand is we are writing the second chapter of the Bush Brewing legacy. And we are going to build a brewery, and we're going to keep this tradition alive uh, for St. Louis, for Missouri, and for ho hopefully the whole, all of the United States as we grow and grow and grow. And we're going to do it in, in a way that our ancestors from the Bush family would be very proud. And I want to be able to leave the legacy for our kids, my kids, so that they can continue it. Just like the first company went five generations of Bush leadership, if we can do the next one for five to ten generations, 
it'll be amazing. I know I won't be around that long, but to know that I can um, ride off into the sunset one day and see that we have left, I've left a legacy like this is going to be really, really heartwarming. You know, Billy, I, I, I admire your passion. I admire your dedication to the craft, and uh, it's an honor to have you here in our pub, the great-grandson and the great-great-grandson of two of the most important men in the history of brewing in the United States. Billy Bush, thank you so much for being here. Alan, it's a pleasure. It. Thank you, my and friend. Cheers. Cheers to you, Alan. Thank you. Thanks to Billy and his assistants, Zach and Rob, and uh, Andy Fechtel of Fechtel Distributing, all of them, for arranging to have Billy come by. I really enjoyed my conversation with him. I had to edit a lot out of it because it went on much longer than, uh, than I had time for here on the podcast. And we talked about a lot of different things. Um, we talked about, you know, uh, baseball and gendering, uh, uh, loyalty and an identity in a community. And Billy is just, he's a great guy. Uh, at first I called him Mr. Bush and he immediately corrected me. He said, no, it's just Billy. And he introduced himself to everybody in the pub as just Billy. And he's a really humble person. Uh, you wouldn't know that he's an heir to one of the most successful business franchises in the history of business not just brewing in the United States, but brewing in the entire world. And I admire that he's taking back his heritage, going back to the origins of his German-American brewing uh, history, and he's going to be brewing an honest German-style lager right here in Missouri. If you would like to learn more about Kreftig Beer and Billy Bush, head over to the website kreftig.com. Dot com that's k r a f t i g dot com you've been listening to the brews traveler follow us on facebook twitter and instagram or check out our website thebrewstraveler.com cheers that's it everybody cheers and thanks for listening please follow us over on facebook and instagram at the bruise traveler podcast if you've got questions suggestions or ideas let me know with a message over on those platforms or if you'd rather send me an email cheers at the just like mike minecock did giving me a mini report on the waterloo illinois beer that's a home brewers club competition that he attended over there last month and mike i will thank you uh put that down on my calendar for next may Thank you again. Please go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a glowing review if you haven't. It would mean so much. The soundtrack for The Bruise Traveler is so graciously provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. They are coming to Jefferson City on August 29th. The waters are receding. We will have parking available at the Mill Bottom Event Center. (laughs) Tickets are now moving as we get closer to the date. Don't wait too long if you are going to come to the show. You can buy them over at pattymalonespub.com or go over to gaelicstorm.com and click on the tour button. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. Mara Lee and I, along with our friends John and Gila and Brian and Sheila, we're headed off to Wisconsin. We're going to go check out Door County, then down to Prairie du Chien, and then we're going to head over to central part of the state and probably stop in and see how things are going at New Glarus see you at Dan and Deborah up to. 
So, until next time, if I don't see you at the pub or at a tap room somewhere across this great nation, I'll see you right here on the podcast. Drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, take care of the earth. It's everything we've got, and Merrily, as always, honey, you are the measure of my dreams. Thanks again, everybody, for listening, and so long for just a while. Now there are those who like to think We'd be best without the drink No beer, ale, or frothy pints of porter So let's hypothesize How it would change your lives If everyone were only drinking water There'd be no public houses No bar to take us spouses No party kegs or cans to celebrate No delirium or visions Regrettable decisions No excuses to be coming home too late So brothers, sisters, it's time to take a stand You can fry my beer from my cold dead hand Raise them up, raise them up and drink them down Yeah, raise them up, raise them up and drink them down There'd be no swinging from the rafters No bleary morning after We wouldn't challenge strangers to a fight There'd be no singing around the fire With a drunken boozy choir We'd all be home and tucked up for the night We'd have no weight to wake the dead We couldn't wet the baby's head Or toast the bachelor or bride-to-be We'd have no cheery point to sup Watching Ireland lose the cup We barely need to go and have a pee So brothers, sisters, it's time to take a stand You can fry my beer from my cold hand Raise them up, raise them up and drink them down down. Yeah, raise them up, raise them up and drink them down Every barmaid, every waiter, both sides of the equator Would be out of work and living on the dole The wealth of every nation depends upon libations Beer, it seems, is worth its waiting dough Well, we've assessed the pros and cons Taught it both the rights and wrongs The hellfire into which we could be hurled Now get that pint into your face You can save the human race you're drinking for the future of the world. So, brothers, sisters, it's time to take a stand. You can fry my beer from my golden hand. Raise them up, raise them up and drink them down. Yeah, raise them up, raise them up and drink them down. Yeah, raise them up, raise them up and drink them down. Well, you can fry my beer from my My only regret is that the wagon load is not all mine. Alfred E. Smith, 42nd Governor of the State of New York, spoken on the occasion of being presented a case of Budweiser from the Clydesdale Beer Wagon 
by Gussie Bush at the end of Prohibition. Born December 30, 1873, Lower East Side, Manhattan, New York City. Died October 4, 1944, Rockefeller Institute Hospital, Upper East Side, Manhattan, New York City. <laughs>